0: Welcome to Noble Warrior Live. This is a place where entrepreneurs talk about what it takes to create and scale purpose-driven organizations. We're going to talk about mindset. We're going to talk about mental models. We're going to talk about actionable tactics such that you can go out and scale your purpose-driven organization. My next guest is a nationally renowned expert in integrative women's health. She helps women transition through important phases of their life from being born all the way up to, well, the end of life. She's on a mission to explore what it means to be a woman in this time, and this age, welcome Dr. Suzanne.
1: Okay. Thanks for having me.
0: We are in an interesting time right now as someone who helps women go through different phases in life. What are some of the questions that keeps coming up as they consult you for advice?
1: Well, I mean, you know, a lot of the questions are the same questions that they ask all the time. I mean, obviously certain things have been heightened and I think there's been a lot of attention placed on impact on birth from, from the pandemic and coronavirus. And so I think probably the the majority of my of the questions I'm getting from patients are around that and how they can stay safe and sane at the same time. And then what are the specifics? How, are, how, is, how is a hospital birth going to be different than it would have been six weeks ago? You know, very specific things. And things have been changing um, a lot. You know, the number of people that we allow into the birth are now limited. We only have one person, one support person. For a while here in Los Angeles, uh, for two weeks in our institution, we were not allowing those people or the institution was not allowing those people to go with the, the mom to the postpartum recovery area. They had to leave within a couple of hours, which I really, I have a lot of questions about. I didn't really understand what the science behind that was. And that got lifted. I think famously in New York City for a while, even partners weren't even allowed in the birthing suite. That's changed. And in fact, Governor Cuomo has gone as far to as as I think this last weekend or last week to talk about allowing birth support like doulas and non-professionals into the uh, birthing suite as well, because we know that it has a really positive impact. So things are kind of in flux and around birth. And I think that's getting a lot of a lot of play, but I'm still getting the same you know questions and problems that i always get whatever the the physical or psychological issue is for the for my my patients are still happening one of the things that's also happened is that i think people made a lot of assumptions about my availability to them or their doctors availability in general to them and even this morning somebody texted me which that's a whole other story but <laughs> she texted me like i have an appointment scheduled and am, am i should i still come you know, people are just like don't know what's happening. Like, nobody knows what's happening. So there's an added extra layer of stress on top oh, of whatever certainty. is going on with them, which is like everybody in every area. This is not anything different. But I'm in a weird position because I'm technically a, a front-line healthcare provider because when I'm in the hospital and doing births and things like that, you know, that's that is considered front-line actually but then a lot of the other things that I do were stopped temporarily and it's just very unclear. Like things are starting to come back here, like elective surgeries and things like that, but very in a limited basis. So it's just weird. It's a weird limbo for all of us. And yet people life goes on and people's health continues to exist. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, so how do you think, so how do you think, cause you're a business owner, right? You're one of, you're one of the partners in your business. Yes. Office. Yes. Yes. So how do you think this, changes because let me actually backtrack for a moment this let me set a little context so this COVID thing happened and it impacted right. a lot of different industries yes sales to travel to events to conferences yeah all kinds of places where basically people gather right right and the very nature of your profession is bringing new life into the world So lots
1: of people into our office too. You know, our waiting room was famous, infamous actually for being overcrowded and, and kind of drama filled because of it. So obviously that's not happening at all because we can't have people near each other. We can't be near each other, you know? So
0: how do you think this going forward is impacting your business, your industry, your colleagues and so on and so forth? It's yeah. having a
1: huge impact. It is going to ck. It is going to have a lasting impact on how healthcare is delivered. First of all, I think there is a different level of awareness of how things work in this country, and to call it a system is ridiculous. And and anybody who wants to call it a system at this point. I mean, they're not paying attention because all of us who are in the system were aware that it's not a system. Now everybody's a system, and I, this this is not meant to disparage my colleagues who are both in administration and trying to keep things together and serve the public and take care of people and literally save lives, or to my colleagues who are really on the front lines in the ICUs, in the emergency departments, you know all that, like they're doing amazing jobs. So I I hope that people can continue to appreciate that side of it too, which is that people don't go into medicine to make money. Okay. People go into medicine because they have a passion to care for other people with at at times with great sacrifice to themselves physically, morally, and financially. Okay. So So that's the one side. And now that here's the, here's so I'm in more of the sector. I'm in a, I'm in a uh, hybrid situation because as a private practitioner, I'm a business owner and I own a business that employs a little under 50 people. Okay. So it's a small business, right? But it's a, for a medical practice that's privately owned, it's pretty big, but I interface a lot in the hospital because I'm, uh, a lot of what I do is hospital-based surgeries, deliveries, right? So we're, anything that wasn't an essential treatment was being held. Well, we've taken, you know, like we, I would say my, just my practice personally, like the patients I see, it's at least 50% down. Which is 50% of my income, right? Or more, maybe. You know, so oh, sorry, it, you actually know,
0: let me interject real quick. 50% yeah. down because people are scared to go to any hospitals, any um, so now? not
1: for the hospital. Okay, so for hospitalizations that are required, those people have to come in. So if you're having a baby and you have you continue to to, you know, decide that you're gonna have the baby in the hospital, that's gonna happen. There's nobody stopping that, nobody can stop that. Right. Um, my surgeries, unless they were emergency surgeries, I wasn't doing any surgery. So I've done since the pandemic hit, I've done probably three surgeries and they really, they had to be done. That's why I did them. Otherwise, nobody was having surgery. Most of my surgeries are not really elective, but they're not generally an emergency-based surgery. They could be put off. Those will start to happen again. Uh, and that's not really a huge, it's a part of my practice. It's not a huge part of my income, but people coming into the office, if you were just coming in for your annual, but you had a couple of things you wanted to talk with me, that's not happening. Right. Those people aren't going to come in not only just because they're scared, but because that that was that's not considered essential and it's not kosher Mm. to be doing it. Mm. So, you know, in in our county and in our state and in the city of Beverly Hills, where my office is, there are restrictions on that. And it's for people's safety. I wouldn't flout that. I mean, why would I like want to bring you in when you really just are having your pap smear? So here's so here are two things that and I think this can this is in addition, this is some of what's gonna change going forward in medicine. So one, everybody's now aware there's no system and it's a hot mess in my opinion, okay? I don't think it serves people very well, Um, sorry. Number two, private practices are private businesses and they are taking a large financial hit and those practices that can't pivot, that don't have depth, uh, that don't have creativity, that don't have some resources and reserves are gonna die. I, there are private practitioners I predict who will go out of business this year. That'll be it. They will shutter their practice. That's enormous, huge, sad, not good for them, not good for any, not good for their employees, not good for their patients, because those people will get absorbed largely into the larger hospital systems, and there are some issues there. But the other side of it is things like telemedicine. So I'm doing a lot more tele telemedicine. It's exhausting. It's draining. I'm learning a lot about myself Wait, and what I actually like to do. Um, Okay. So let me tell you what that is. So telemedicine and telehealth have sort of been on the radar in the background, probably 30, 40 years. And it's where you are, you and the patient are not together. You are having a, like this, you're doing a video conference. There are different variants, like in large systems, like the prisons do a ton of this, right? So doctors can be contracted and taken care of, for instance, a specialized practice like HIV, without going physically to 14,000 locations they can do there are people on site who do certain things and then the doctor and the decision maker maybe some diagnostics are occurring elsewhere so it really does serve a large population of people very very efficiently it requires a lot of technology for that kind of a system i'm obviously not doing that but i can see my patients like if you have a complaint that doesn't require me to put my hands on you and i do mean put my hands on you because like you can show me things on your body there's a camera But if I need to feel or, you know, do some diagnostic testing, I can't do that. But the rest of it, I can do this way. And I'm doing that. And a lot of my patients have elected to do that. And that's something that I think is really good for medicine. I think it's going to make it more efficient. I think it's going to make it more attractive. You're not leaving your office, driving across town, paying for parking, sitting in my way. I mean, it's like a three hour thing to have 15 minutes with me. Mm -hmm. Maybe.
0: Mm -hmm. So you said, but but it's better for both of us. But, but you say it's, it's tiring and what's 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 the not so good thing
1: about teleconference? Well, I mean, for me, I'm used to doing things a certain way. I've been doing it for 20 years. You know, first of all, I can see more patients, you know, in the office. Boom, boom, boom. I'm, you know, I also am up and moving. I'm a very hyperactive person. I chose this field because I don't like to sit on my ass. Nice. So when I'm doing a teleconference, I am sitting on my ass, you know. And it's just, there's something about this that's like draining, you know, it's, I I mean, everybody's been talking about it who doesn't normally do this. Like, in some ways, it's awesome. In some ways, it's just like your brain gets zapped after sitting in front of the computer or talking to people. Uh, it's just different. I it's see. okay. It's not going to kill I me. See.
0: I see. So, it's more of a user interface type thing because not, it's not, it's, it's draining, as you said, sitting in front of a computer. But, you know, for looking, right? One of the things that is being talked about is what if you have like a window like looking. Thing where you can actually do a device it's as if you're talking to someone through a clear window or things like that would that be helpful or I don't
1: know time? I mean I think a lot of it is that you just don't know till you're doing it and it's just different it's just different it's not like I come home from a busy day at the office and I'm not tired I mean I am there's a lot of energy that's being exchanged between humans mm-hmm. and you know this is just different it's just like a different way of experiencing a relationship because a lot of what medicine and healing and diagnostics are, I mean, there's definitely science, but there's a lot of art. And a lot of that is like the sort of the personal exchange that is occurring Mm -hmm. between Mm -hmm. the people. I mean, you know, for me, it's a very important part of what I do because I walk in the room and I'm already like, I'm going to get a vibe from a person so like i i just i see their body language I, you know like there's certain things that i'll pick up on and i'll ask that have nothing to do with what they said they're here for or that their chart said or that they told my you know medical assistant like i walk in and i'm like what's going on you know mm-hmm. so this is different it's just a different mm-hmm. part of my brain mm-hmm. so but i not, think not... that this is here to stay and i think it's good i think this is here to stay and that's going to have talk about mm-hmm. like downstream effects commercial real estate you know mm-hmm. do we really do i do we really need to have as much real estate as we have i mean maybe we mm-hmm. won't need to eventually
0: mm-hmm.
1: staffing has mm-hmm. it has it's going to have a big impact long-term impact things are going to change in the mm-hmm. economy obviously everybody knows that but i i really strongly predict that it will change very much so in my field as well
0: yeah okay so let's talk about that for a moment since we're on that topic so say this continues another three months let's say or six months or whatever right so what are some of the industry trends that you have you can kind of predict already all right so we're gonna shrink down commercial real estate we're not gonna have as many staff
1: yeah
0: what else like in terms of how you provide care for your patients coming in let's say now it's no longer beverly hills proper and then more people are coming to you from elsewhere? I mean, I don't know. So what is some of the- Well, yeah. So some of, the,
1: some of the regulations that have been on the books for decades that the telemedicine community was trying to fight against, I only became aware of it recently because I was sort of interested in it anyways, because I have my conventional private practice that I'm a partner in, but I've always taught, I have the integrative stuff. I do it in the office, but a lot of it was a little bit separate. It was more on the teaching and writing side, you know, and I was always like, Hmm, you know, is there a way that I could bring that in more, but have them a little bit separate. And so I was sort of like interested in it. And when this happened, I was like on it, you know, like, and I was like, Oh, okay, we got to do, we got to start doing this. It's going to be a way we can continue to serve our patients. And, you know, so I started learning and what I learned is that they've been trying to get the changes like reimbursement from insurance practicing across state lines like lots there's lots of things that right now are lifted on an emergency basis but I think the genie's out of the bottle so I think a lot of us it will be attractive and like you said like I'm already planning on opening my practice to anybody like because before it wasn't clear to me if it was going to be legal for me to see you in Arizona without having seen you first physically well that's not a thing anymore I can mm. open my practice to anybody in the United States who wants to do a telehealth. I do a lot of menopause work. A lot mm. of that can be done this way, a lot of it, the majority of it. Mm. And so there's opportunities for a lot of people. But like I said, I think people who have a certain way that they do things are less creative, are older, whatever, have, have a more procedure based practice. It's going to, I think it's going to hurt. Mm. I think it's going to hurt. And I think we're going to lose some of these people. Mm. You know, which means people are going to have. I think there's going to be a shift in the way people access, because the other thing is that in some ways this provides a lot more access for for patients to meet. But not if you live on a reservation where you I was listening to NPR this morning and they were talking about how they're providing free hot Wi-Fi hotspots on reservations, because even if there's Internet access, people can't afford it.
0: Mm.
1: So these people are underserved terribly as it is. Mm, mm, mm. And creating opportunities online still is not creating opportunities for people without access necessarily Mm -hmm. and i think it's going to highlight i think a lot of the disparities that people experience in in access to care and then in outcomes are going to be highlighted and already have i mean i feel like some of them are getting brushed under the rug a little bit but you know there's all sorts of data indicating that people of color are suffering much worse from covid and have much higher death rates not that yeah. every color is poor but you know we do have a lot of people of color in this country who are poor and who don't right. have access and, you know you so know one of the things,
0: things that that always inspire me every time I interact with you is you you have so much heart you care so <laughs> much about a lot of different things yeah right? you care about health you care, you care about sustainability you care about giving access to the less privileged right so that's very apparent for anyone that pays a little bit of attention they're like oh yeah suzanne dr suzanne is has a huge heart so segue back to sort of the origin story have you always operated like this was there a moment where you made a choice in your life where you said no i'm gonna pursue medicine i'm gonna stand for women's health i'm gonna health healthcare for others?
1: You know, it's a series of, of decisions. And I, I think, you know, now that I'm getting older, like maybe there are, are specific times that I can look back on. I think when you're in them, it's not always obvious, but you know, some of this is just a long history of being just kind of a sensitive child. You know, I was like a sensitive kid and I was like sort of the person that everybody would like confide in. So that had some kind of an influence because it I made me feel good to be able to listen and to help, help people. And I also, my dad's a doctor. So oh, okay. yeah. Family business. I, All right. Yeah. Kind of. I mean, he's a psychoanalyst, which is interesting because, you know, I do have a tendency to look at the whole person, like not pieces, parts, which is maybe why I was attracted to women's health. Cause I feel like there's more opportunity. There, I felt like more opportunity for me to be holistic in my approach to people So I definitely grew up in a household where these kinds of things were valued and they weren't even actually talked about, but like demonstrated, you know, like my dad grew up, you know, in a kind of poor household and my grandparents were immigrants. And, you know, there was a lot of like the kind of that, like make it to America story that that definitely was talked about. Like if we lived in a small town, we'd be the richest people in town, that kind of stuff. You know, how lucky you are. (laughs) That was the kind of stuff I got growing up. I Meanwhile, well, you know, I had everything. I really, I had everything. I had a very—I pri- grew up in Beverly Hills. I had a very privileged background. I traveled the entire world. My parents are big world travelers. They're not together for many years. They still are huge travelers. So that was the other thing is I saw the world very early, and I saw like, oh, people have different kinds of lives. <laughs> people if, they eat different food. Like I saw that everybody isn't the same, and that you know, it's it's really beautiful, you know. And I think I learned to appreciate difference. So these things influenced me. And then I worked, I actually didn't think I was going to go to medical school. I did a liberal arts education at a really wonderful institution called Wesleyan University, which is prized for the watchword in those days was diversity. This is the eighties and, and also kind of like. A very integrative approach, like very a lot of critical thinking and learning how to learn and loving learning and all that stuff, and and so I was very much encouraged academically, and I think that that has had a really lasting impression. Like my major was social psych was I had a joint major in sociology and psychology, and I had a minor in art history, and I wrote a thesis on an artist and his social cycle thing. I mean, like that was like very Wesleyan, very Wesleyan. Like I made up my own thing basically and was told like, that's what you should do. You should approach life that way. So I think having that, like feeling like I wanted to do things differently and be creative and having adults and mentors around me say, yes, that's what you should do. Like that made a big difference, right? Because I've never done it the way I was supposed to do it. I didn't even do pre-med, I didn't do pre-med. And then I left college and I was like, "Mm, I don't really like working for people. (laughs) that's obvious. I mean I can but I really don't enjoy it (laughs) and I went I went back and did a post-bac pre-med so that's the other thing too there's never one way to do it there's always another opportunity the road is winding it's not like I so didn't get into medical school the way I was supposed to do it I was out of college for four years I worked I did research I worked in a free clinic. There's a through line, right? Like I really liked helping people for the sake of helping them, you know, and not cause I'm so awesome, but you know, you get a lot out of it when you give, you, when you, you get what you give. So, you know, when I, when I got into medical school, I was at USC at LA County and that was really interesting. Cause I was like, oh, everybody isn't here for the same reason. <laughs> what? I was like, so idealistic, CK, so idealistic. But then I got to work with these amazing patients at LA County who I felt were so generous. It was like, you don't even know me. You're really like, this is scary. You're sick. You're poor. Like, why did. And they were, I felt like they were the most generous people I'd ever met and so kind and and like, how, what? Because they would let me in. Like, that's so private. That's so, like, it's your body, it's your health. And it's like, people were so vulnerable and, And I think my authenticity and my being real, like really paid off because people trusted me. Mm. And then I got a lot of like, and there's like some cultural stuff too, but you know, a lot of uh, Central Americans and and Mexican Americans, and you know, it's a county hospital. It's one of the biggest county hospitals in the world. It was just a crazy jumble. And uh, people who didn't even speak Spanish, like they spoke some native, you know, tongue that i didn't you know i was like this person's from mexico okay like they were they were native they didn't speak they didn't speak the mexican spanish that i learned (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know and we just somehow figured it out and i got a lot of i got a lot of love from these patients Mm. and i got a lot of like god is working through you that kind of stuff which i really
0: pause for a moment yeah god is working through me how old were you when you kind of learned that and then embody it or in my 20s it was in my 20s and i heard
1: that and i was like hmm at first you're just like oh cool this is this person's belief system and i'm here to help provide comfort and then as i got older i was like hmm interesting not in charge yeah seems to me getting a lot of information about that Mm. because as a physician and i'm a surgeon like Mm. you're in charge you're the authority and it's a weird balance because you have to have that confidence. I have to have confidence. I don't want to gross people out, but to cut people open and you know, have somebody over there put them to sleep and I'm going to cut them up and take things out, put them back together and they're going to wake up and they'll be fine. They'll be better than ever. Like that's mm-hmm. crazy. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's a crazy thing to do. But I think as I got older, I really realized like, and talk about purpose, right? So my purpose really was I have some kind of innate gift and skill set and talent, and I've worked very hard to hone those skills, be really good at it, and have a level of integrity that I'm comfortable with. But there is definitely a part of it that I just, it has nothing to do with me. I don't understand that I don't need to understand it, mm-hmm. but it does drive me because it gives me a purpose. So, mm-hmm. you know, you mentioned my, my uh, integrative background. I have a uh, background in Ayurveda, which is the holistic, traditional medical system of india similar to chinese medicine and i think people know a lot about which yoga better, which is part it? of it which, huh? which
0: one's better in your eyes
1: are you really good really
0: <laughs> well i mean like, is um, this is like
1: team ayurveda no
0: no no i'm asking <laughs> that question jokingly right because i know you are I know. it is it is essentially like a thought system and it from
1: they're very similar though
0: right so and if so, you look
1: historically they grew up around the same time they're different i think i think chinese medicine in this country is more regimented and it's regulated so i think if you Mm -hmm. look at is there a like a level of aptitude and skill that is recognizable that chinese medicine wins for sure in the united states because ayurveda isn't regulated here and but ayurveda to me appealed to me because probably because i came from meditation and yoga and i just found ayurveda But they're very similar. They're very similar in terms of their approach to the mind-body system and how people live and lifestyle management and the impact of spirituality and our relationship with nature and the seasons and ourselves. And, you know, so the word dharma is probably going to be familiar to a lot of people that follow you. Mm -hmm. And that is your purpose. That is your purpose here. And I believe in that. I believe that I have a dharma it's evolving. It's not always been the same or will be the same, but, but it's, I believe that it exists and it does drive me.
0: So quick question. There's so many directions because I you, know I'm like, did you, I yeah, you basically condense, me? you know, decades of your experiences in three like well, yeah. minutes, right? <laughs>
1: so,
0: so what I'll ask you is this, as a Western doctor, surgeon, right? How do you present yourself? How do you balance yourself from the holistic medicine Ayurveda versus the Western approach? And then how do you kind of reconcile that internally? And how do you present that externally?
1: You know, some of it, I just, like I said, I've always had a tendency to just sort of do what I think is the best thing to do anyway. So, so it's sort of like, well, I just do it because it makes sense to me. And if it doesn't make sense to you, that's fine. You could go elsewhere. I mean, you know, really like, if it seems weird to you, Then you're probably not a good fit for me. Having said that, one of my favorite things about Ayurveda specifically is that they love to talk about the history of the medicine. And famously, one of the most important scholars in Ayurveda, Shushut, was a surgeon. So, you know, in Ayurveda, as in most medical systems, like everything can't be handled the same way. And sometimes you do have to do surgery. So that's just kind of now. I was already a surgeon and doing it, but I was like, oh, cool. OK, that works. <laughs> so I've kind of glommed onto to that thought. But I think that's just it's, it's because that's my practical side. I mean, I think people make an assumption that if you have some kind of involvement with a holistic, traditional medical system, that it's all woo. Well, that's not true. I mean, the ancient physicians of, of China and, and India and everywhere else, because there was medicine everywhere, all over the planet. There always has, that was the science that was available to them at the time. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting, I mean, I could go off on a whole thing about this. It's pretty fascinating. And one of the things that I really loved when I first started studying was like, they kind of nailed it before they were doing dissections about uh, how the body works. It's pretty wild. Like, it was like, whoa, that's actually what happens, you know, like very subtle systems like what we would call immunity or the way the blood system works or the nervous system like they were right (laughs) and they had language about it so that that appealed to me I think but I mean like I said like I'm very much you know we talked about this before like I'm very much heart and mind and I think that that is that is you know science and intuition or art and you know and and that's discussed in conventional medicine also that's the bedside manner you know or I think mean, that's the the best way you would see it, you know. I Ar-
0: see. So it's just a different language. Yeah, and it's a different language. are all there. There's different totally. language, different nuance about how. And I have
1: a different bag of tricks. I have a deeper bag of tricks. I have pharma. I have, you know, my surgeries, my procedures. I have meditation, breath work, herbs, you know, lifestyle stuff. Ayurveda talks a lot about aligning your practices with your particular unique constitution and the environment in which you are living, which includes seasonal change. I think, you know, which is sustainability I was always into, but that they all go together. That's one of the reasons that sustainability and trying to be as in harmony with our environment as possible is so, so, so important to me. And, you know, we met because of the work we're doing on in the, whatever we talk, calling it the mafia for good, the COVID crush hackathon, whatever. And immediately I, I saw that connection for me too. And I think it's really helped me to think differently about problems and solutions, you know? And what we talked about was that I felt like our reliance on single use products and healthcare is a disaster. And it's been a disaster in this pandemic, specifically with PPE. It's a very, very specific failure. And it's widespread. And this is another thing that I'd love to see change. We'll see if that happens. We're working toward it.
0: So as as someone who is a innovator, a disruptor, one may say, of industries and of thought, how do you go about, because there's, a f- again, a few different things that we could talk about. One of the things that I heard is because of the patients not going to the hospitals because they're scared and therefore... Hospitals are long, now looking at layoffs and, and stop hiring contract yeah. medical staff. If not now, then three months from now, because they're over capacity basically, right? Yeah,
1: depending on, I know at, at, on our institution, it's a huge institution. They've been, I have to say, I'm pretty impressed with how adept they've been at, at being creative. But I know that they moved a lot of staff from one area to another in order to keep them employed. I mean, I can't remember the numbers, but I think Cedars employs like 10,000 people. It's like a village.
0: That's a lot of people. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So so on the systems level, that's what's happening as a way to, you know, meet the demand and supply, right? Kind of right in the middle. So as someone who is a systems thinker like you are. When you're thinking about single-use PPEs, or you're thinking about, hey, these waves are coming in three mm-hmm. months in time, mm-hmm. where our current practice, our friend's current practice is over capacity, then how do you kind of navigate your thoughts such that you can act be in the systems level rather than just on the individual level or on the business owner level yeah
1: it's hard because like my focus has to my focus has been on my practice with my partners and really it's really interesting because normally we'd be having a quarterly strategic you know planning meeting right and we did that in january and now we literally i mean just to like we have a we have a call schedule that is for this month only is totally different than where we were in January, we were planning for like, what's the year's plan and where are we putting the money and what are we going to invest in and what are we going to not invest in and how are we going to expand, how are we going to grow the business like that? Okay. So we actually are not, we're like actually much like people are in general right now living on a more of a day-to-day basis, which is interesting and weird. I don't have, my institutional experiences are more as a professional lay, per, lay leader and you know, I think, but I, my, my experience as a person, kind of getting through my own crises, I mean, I've had many more since, you know, getting into medical school, has been to be creative and think outside the box. And that's why I think having people getting together with different perspectives, like we've been doing, is really, really crucial, because you're going to have 1% as an entrepreneur and having experience in social entrepreneurship. And then the guy who's the you know supply chain manager is gonna have an, ex- an experience here and a perspective here and the engineer and the designer. And then you, know, you need the healthcare people because what do we need on the ground? Who's the person that you need to talk to? How do we generally use things? And this is not gonna be, I think the solutions, and I can talk about it in healthcare. The solutions in healthcare are not gonna come I think directly out of healthcare only minds. I just don't think it's gonna work. I mean, if we want same old, same old, then that's what's gonna happen because they're doing a great job at that, but they're not necessarily out-of-the-box thinkers. I will having not having been involved intimately in the top leadership at my institution that I attend at Cedar Sinai Medical Center, I can't tell you what's really been going down. I can tell you that I think they've done an outstanding job because they did have to turn things around this huge cruise ship really rapidly. And yeah, there were a lot of issues in the beginning and I got to have personal experience with that, you know, like, wow, some stuff that I was like, what? But, you know, I, thought, they were, what, what kind um, of I got exposed at a patient who actually had coronavirus very, very early, like right before everything went bonkers, right? And so I... Just the whole experience of like, you know, as soon as I found out talking to Department of Health, figuring out what I'm supposed to do, feeling very much like they had no idea what I was supposed to do. And I'm talking this is like early mid March, right? And I was like, I just was really disconcerting. I was like, who's the authority? Nobody knows what's going on. Okay. Ten days after exposure, I got a cold. So I was I was told, get to 14 days, you're good to go. I got day ten, I got sick. So now I had to go get tested. And even then. It was like, nobody knew what, just figuring out what I was supposed to do was very complicated. I ultimately got tested in employee health services at Cedars because even though I'm an employee, I'm an attending. And, you you know, at that point, this is like March 24th, like nobody could test. So I went to Cedars, got tested. If you've heard anybody call it a brain biopsy, it it feels like a brain biopsy. It's really bad. (laughs) And it was very they stressful. Stick
0: it, the thing, oh.
1: Dude, they stick it so far in there. And I've had babies come out of me, okay? <laughs> so I was like, at least that was only five seconds. Because I was like, you're just crying. It was so painful and like automatic. You know, because something gets stuffed up your nose, you cry. Oh, I was like, oh. it was so stressful. And then I was quarantined. Like I was isolated from my family. I have a converted garage. I lived out there. And I found out five days later that every single, I probably shouldn't do that, say this, but the, the department of health had picked up those labs and they got mishandled and they they were all lost. Every single person who got tested that day. So we had to come back
0: oh, and man. get retested. To go through that again. Oh, and man. not just
1: that, I was like, well, do I have it or not? Like, what do I do? Am I living away? Did I, exp- you know, I was like, did I expose my family? Did I expose other patients? Like, Oh my God. Just like, you know, this was right in the beginning when everybody was kind of freaking out anyways. And it was like, Oh, this, this just shows me like, nobody knows what they're doing. Like they're doing the best they can. Mm. Now I don't want people to lose confidence in the department of health or in Cedarside and medical center. They have since that time really gotten it together. And I have to say, even during it, their communication was, was okay. Like they were like, this happened, you know, nobody knows what's happening right now. But that was a real wake up call. And I think when I was asked and invited to participate in this, this thing that we do, you know, initially, I was like, Oh, it's one more thing. And Karen, you know, has a way with getting people involved. But I, I, it, I was drawn to it, because, like I said, I knew that I had something to, to offer. And I felt like, The solutions are going to only come from collaborating and thinking creatively talking Mm. to people who have a completely different worldview i don't know what the solutions are but i know that that's the only way they're going to happen if we want to make changes that's been the only way it's worked for me in my life actually Mm. Mm.
0: yeah actually walk us through sort of your mental models now someone else listening to this they're in the middle of pivoting right now yeah their old model doesn't work anymore that they know their co-offerings you know who they are they have a sort of an idea of what their purpose is because they're listening to my podcast right right
1: right 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 or at least they're they're
0: interested yeah they're interested they're they're aspired uh aspiring entrepreneur in that way okay so what would you say to them because there's a lot of things that you share about your journey to become a doctor i can pull them out but i'd love to kind of hear what you say before i Show, yeah, show I kind of want to hear what you say
1: too, and hear what you heard. I think what I what has worked for me always. I always saw myself as a gut instinct person. I I my gut is going to tell me is this the thing I should be doing or not? Is this the person I should be involved with or not? Is this the, is this is this is my 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 heart has to be in it in order to really go all in. And so I think that you have to be careful because if your gut instinct is off because of other factors, and I know I'm being kind of vague, but if you don't really know who you are, and you haven't spent the time to kind of go inward and figure out who you are and what works for you, then you may kind of end off on, you know, end up on a, a little uh, journey over there tangentially, which by the way, at 54 and a half, I can tell you those things are supposed to happen. So I think we've heard a lot of, I feel like in the last year or so, it's all about failure now, right? It's not about achieving, it's about failure, but it's about lessons. It's about lessons and being open to the lessons. So that's number one. So doing some work. And for me, it has been journaling, writing, talking to other people, therapy, uh, meditation, 12 steps, (laughs) seriously. So those have been ways I kind of can peel away all the external. And what is going on with me? And sometimes that means stripping away a lot of stuff and really detaching and letting go of things that I think are important, whether it's attributes, activities, characteristics, projections, you know, how I'm going to be viewed. As I've gotten older, and you probably are going to hear this from other people or probably have, like, what I think you think really doesn't matter. It really doesn't like I can use it against myself if I would like to, or I can use it to prop myself up if I would like to. But honestly, what's going on with me is the most important thing. So that's really numbers one, two and three, because from there you can start to really generate what what do you like to do? What is it that gives you joy? What is it that scares you? What is it that you are looking at that you don't think you can do? Where where is it that you are not enough? Where is it that you are too much? And that can help you start to build a roadmap but honestly a lot of it ends up being for me getting quiet because i tend to otherwise i say yes to a lot of stuff i get involved with a lot of things there's a lot of noise there's a lot of story i think looking at yourself and looking at what is the story that you tell yourself consistently from the time you were a kid from the time you can remember what is the story maybe you learned from your family or you know whatever maybe your your ancestors have a story that you're carrying too It's very psychological. It really is. And it's, to me, it's very spiritual. It's a spiritual journey. And I don't, I think that people don't always talk about necessarily explicitly, but there's no other way for me to understand it. I mean, like I said, early on, early on, people were telling me like, Oh, this isn't, basically they were telling me without me understanding it until now, this isn't about you. Not that we don't appreciate you or we don't have gratitude for what you're giving us, but this really isn't about you. It's about something much bigger. So, for me too. When your I start getting your parents
0: taught you that. Your parents taught you that? <sighs> Not at all. Not at all. <laughs> Not at all. Who taught you that?
1: No, I love my parents. They're amazing, but they're like from the fifties. It's like a whole different thing. I will tell you though. I did learn from my parents that you you are like, and I talked about this a little bit jokingly, but you are a very lucky person. You're very privileged to have born been born into the the body you were born into, into the life you were into, and you owe it to others. You owe it to others to share. I definitely got that message, you know. So but it wasn't so much about like God or spirituality or anything like that. It definitely wasn't talked about in my house. Mm-hmm. For me, having spirituality and having a higher purpose is really important. And I think when I, you know, when I get myself, when I find myself getting really activated and I want to say this to other people, if you're like, that, that is not the time to do anything or make any decisions at all. It's the time to note, just notice it and say, Oh, okay. Wow. And whatever works for you, whether it's breathing, whether it's drawing, whether it's getting quiet, whether it's giving that away to God or whatever you consider deity, spirituality, the universe, energy, the—I don't care. That works for me, and then I can kind of get back, drop back into myself. Mm. It's—I know it sounds very airy fairy, but it's really the one no, that works for me. No, not at all.
0: This type of conversations, I mean, happens all the time on my podcast. That's actually precisely the reason why I want to bring entrepreneurs like you who have accomplished a lot at the same time. I wanna normalize this type of conversation because in my mind, we make what we are. So if yeah. our internal is chaos, whatever you make is gonna be chaos. If not now, then sometime down the line. So ultimately we make what we are. So the first- 100% of-
1: and it's kind of what I'm saying. What I'm saying is if you're not being true to yourself. You're gonna have a big life that is not true to you. And you may find yourself very unhappy and wondering why. Well, that's because you really weren't being true to yourself. So I'm going to tell you a little story. In my mid-40s, I mean, I've always been a very ambitious person, and I wanted to be successful, and I wanted to have a lot of stuff and do a lot of stuff. And I, I always had this purpose, and I felt like I wanted to share, but I definitely wanted a lot because I think I didn't, wasn't getting something. And it was, what I wasn't getting was I wasn't getting me. At 47, I had, was diagnosed with breast cancer. Mm. Out of the blue, right? I was young, like, what? How did that happen? Mm. And so that little brush with mortality changed a lot of things for me. Because even though I was skirting around a lot of the stuff we're talking about today, I really wasn't owning it. And I wasn't into it completely. And I was... I just had a very complex relationship with it. I had a lot of fear about it. I think I had a lot of shame around it. And I was- When you say
0: it, breast cancer or death? No,
1: about like who I really was and wanted to be and what I needed to be Yeah. Yeah. And uh, everything changed. Everything changed. I mean, I had to shut things down because I had to take care of myself, which was not something that I was very good at. I was very good at taking care of you and everybody else, but not myself. Mm. And a lot of things changed. I mean, my marriage ended. The way I approached my work changed. And I did a lot of work on myself and it was really, really painful, and really hard. And I actually, all these other things that I do, I stopped doing a, pretty much all of it for a couple of years. And I had to really let go of like what I thought I was going to be in this world or who I thought I was supposed to be or, oh my God, the moment I'm going to lose momentum. Nope. None of that happen, happened as I got back to who I am. And then all sorts of things started opening up to me that were much more aligned with who I am and what I really wanted to be doing.
0: Sorry, pause for a second. Yeah. What did you do to get to the center of who you really are? Cuz I and I asked that question specifically yeah. because this is the time a lot of chaos, external, internal, marriage, relationships, all of it happening. Yeah. All Right. So people are going through this. Well, I had to grieve more. I had, I had,
1: so when my marriage ended and I was recovering from breast cancer, because it kind of happened around the same time, I had to grieve all of this stuff that, I had to grieve this person that I thought I was. And I did very specific work. I did, this is where 12 step really worked for me. I'm not, I, I mean, I don't wanna get too deeply into it. I'm, I don't have a substance abuse problem. It was more of a process issue for me. Mm-hmm. And that really helped me a lot. But I think really that process, the 12 steps are really amazing. I mean, basically the, the process is what I'm talking about. It's um, admitting that you're powerless. Looking at yourself in in real time and actually owning up to the shit that you've done Mm -hmm. and also giving yourself a break and and apologizing to yourself for what you put yourself through Mm -hmm. and letting go of that person, that that shell that was acting a certain way and then having to rebuild. And I mean, I really like I didn't like I basically did my work, took care of my kids. And like read, meditated, exercised, I talked to a very small group of people. I really a lot of people in my life that really weren't necessary <laughs> fell away. And I a lot of my media stuff my t- I didn't do any of that for like two years at least. And I was very attached to that, right? You know, I had a lot of, like, TV stuff and, like, people, oh, we wanted you to do this television show, blah, 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 blah. people blowing smoke up my ass, sorry. Like, you know, and I was just, like, Ugh. Like, I, I had no energy for any of it. Mm-hmm. And I realized, like, that's not even, like, what is it that I want? Mm-hmm. So, really, like, I got really quiet. And sometimes it's really uncomfortable to be quiet because then you're left with yourself. <laughs> mm-hmm. You're not, you don't have the distractions. Yeah. So, that is what's happening right now is why a lot of people are freaking out. Mm-hmm. There's no distractions of activities and stuff and things and people. And it's like it can be like scary. <laughs> mm-hmm. But if you can just get quiet with yourself and realize like that's okay. Mm-hmm. Quiet is okay. Uncomfortable is okay. Mm-hmm. Grief is okay. Anger is okay. All these things are okay. Mm-hmm. Feel them. For me, what worked was feeling them. Writing about them processed, processed it for me, talking about it with you know people, certain trusted people worked. And then just kind of being open to like, okay, what's going to happen next? Let's see. And it's pretty crazy how many things opened up to me that made much more sense.
0: Mm, including a
1: much better relationship.
0: <laughs> I love that. First and foremost with yourself, right? Be at peace. A hundred
1: percent. The relationship with me. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's the most important. Because no matter, I guess, you know, with this podcast, I've, you know, the kind of friends I have. A lot of people are, you know, have a lot of admiration for them and then all the staff and they're the boss, they're the leader, they're respected, all these things. But they tell me, most of them, almost all of them tell me that, well, at the end of the day, all those things are nice, but they're fleeting. Mm-hmm. Those things, the success, the accolades, the magazine covers, the interviews, all these things. When you close your eyes, you're by yourself again. So whatever doesn't suit well with you yep, are still there. <laughs> Hundred
1: percent, hundred percent. That's like when you like decide you're going to move to another city to start over. Mm, you aren't you the person going to that new city? I mean, right. like if you don't if you don't get okay with you, you're you're going everywhere with you. I you know I used to when I was a resident, I had a teacher, a, a physician, Doctor Leo Lagasse. And he was a really outstanding surgeon. He was a GYN oncologist. So he's a cancer specialist for women's cancers. And he was a known philosopher. Like he was an incredible surgeon. The surgeries were so long, like hours and hours, and hours long. And he would ultimately, he would start kind of getting into it with the residents and ask you all sorts of like personal kind of philosophical questions. And he, I remember he said this to all of us all the time. He was like, you know, what do you think? Do you think that my patients on their dying, you know, on their dying breath or they're worried about like the, you know, golf course or the, the extra car, or the beach house or the trips? No, they're worried about their family, their loved ones. Like they don't care about the jewelry and the, you know, I mean, he didn't give you the answer, but he, you know, he dealt with a lot of women dying of ovarian cancer. Mm. And I was, you know, young, a young mom. I was like 20, whatever. I was probably like 30 when I met him And, you know, not like I didn't kind of thought that myself, but hearing that from a man much older than me, who was very accomplished and very admired and just bringing it down to the brass tacks, like what's important, Mm. you know, was a a good thing to hear at that, at that point. But, you know, you have to figure that stuff out for yourself, honestly. And sometimes you have to like put yourself through some bullshit and pain to get there.
0: So good question, actually, you're at a unique position where you get to see a new life yeah 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 and you care for them throughout their different stages of life and at some point during your medical career, c- career probably seeing people also pass as well right so you're at a very unique position
1: yeah not as much you'd be surprised not so much thank god poo poo poo, poo. but yes of course life life threatening illnesses people being very very sick people losing pregnancies you know
0: do you mm-hmm. feel that yeah. that gives you more of a perspective it makes it it's obviously how to articulate it it's challenging google through the human life roller coaster right for everyone doesn't matter who you are how rich how poor it doesn't matter who you are right just different but you had a unique position where you could literally see the beginning the middle and the end yeah do you feel like that makes it a little bit easier since you have more of a meta perspective is-
1: I don't know if it makes me, I don't think it makes it easier, but I mean, I, I, and but I think you have to be really careful because I think I definitely do have a different perspective because I'm dealing with like intense life issues on a daily basis. And one of the ways that people survive that. Oh, oh my goodness. Sorry. sorry. I think just that's, that's my, I'll, I'll be back my camera went cuckoo, sorry. One of the the ways that we survive that is is dissociating. So, because if we're too in it, we're not gonna be able to function the mm-hmm. way we need to function as the doctor, as the authority, as the repository for people and their strong yeah. feelings and experiences. But on the other side of it, you know, it's really true. It's like, I forget sometimes that my, my perspective on life is very, very different because I have contact with this stuff. I definitely have contact more with the beginning of life and the end of life. Mm -hmm. But I do have contact with the how delicate it all is and how um, fragile it can be. And that gives me a different a different way of viewing things. Maybe I appreciate things a little bit differently. I'm kind of a glass half full person. I'm noticing it a lot with my colleagues in, in terms of how they're Responding to the to the COVID thing, it's interesting to see like who's just freaking out, honestly, and like super negative about everything, and who's, I mean, and there's a lot to be negative about. There's a lot of bad stuff going on actually, and who's able to sort of balance it, you know? It's not. It's an observation. It's not a judgment at all because a lot of these people are people I love, but I'm like. Mm I can't read all every single article about this. Like I could pretty much know what's going on. Sure. Like I don't, you know. I don't so. know if
0: you ever so I don't know if you ever heard this quote. It's it goes like adversity reveals our character.
1: Mm, mm-hmm. I don't
0: know if you have any had any uh, psychedelic type experiences before. You're a doctor, so you don't have to answer that question. So I don't
1: care, like a long time ago, nothing recent. <laughs>
0: okay. But, but essentially from my point of view. Adversity is basically you're seeing, you're sitting in ceremony, right? And it reveals all of your light, all of your shadows as well. It's the amplifier, it's a a multiplier. So the way I see it is, you know, people just do more of what they normally do. Totally Totally understandable, totally human, totally cool. It's just, you know, like, okay, so what an opportunity for us to actually work on our own stuff.
1: A thousand percent. And like I said, working on stuff is hard. It's a lot easier to run around crazy, busy, racking up podcasts and money, you know, whatever, not that they go together, (laughs) than it is to sit still and be quiet and feel whatever is going to come up. I mean, people, I mean, look, we could have another three hour conversation on this one. And this culture certainly doesn't value that. That's one of the reasons we're having so much Existential angst. It, I mean, definitely, there's real stuff. People are losing their livelihood. They're in fear financially. They're, they're, you know, people are sick. But I think a large part of this and like the protesting and stuff is more about like fighting for this idea of what we are, which is like go go go. Like, is that do we need to be like that? I mean, and I'm saying that from the privilege of my home. Okay, I so. But there's some, there's some like uh, existential angst going on here that, like you said, is just being revealed by the amplification and the intensity of the experience. Mm. It was there.
0: I want to talk to you, bring back to the more practical stuff. Mm -hmm. So you were going through a middle of your own crises. You got still, right?
1: Well, it got forced on me. (laughs)
0: <laughs> right, and you took care of what you needed to take care of and you yeah. got still. And you said you talked to trusted friends. What are some of the criteria that you use for your trusted friends? Because uh, one could imagine you had thousands of acquaintances, thousands yeah. of Facebook contacts, right? Yeah. Thousands of people who admire you. How did you pick your friends who you truly wanted to uh, hold close during that time? Well,
1: you know, like you said, people kind of people kind of showed themselves, you know? It, was, it became clear who was their... In, in different ways, and so that that really helped me identify who was gonna who I was gonna rely on for different things. And then I actually you know and I made some new friends who were also kind of going through things that I could relate to because one of the things that's even happened in the beginning of this whole situation with the pandemic was that you know very early on I really only wanted to talk to certain close friends of mine that are also physicians because they just understood it in a different way and the, like what we were going through was very different. It's not so much the case now, but I think there were people that I had shared experiences with that I knew that they had gone through crises. My cousin is an example and uh, you know, I'm, I'm actually like, I can talk forever, but I'm actually a really private person. I tend to not, I tend to not share. And I learned that a lot about myself during this whole thing, which is that I, I don't really like being vulnerable. I mean, Mm -hmm. it makes, that would seem obvious to someone looking at me, I'm a doctor, (laughs) Like, it's not about my vulnerability. It's about yours. I'm mm-hmm. <laughs> good you with yours.
0: Can, can I ask you a question about that? Yeah. No, that's a really beautiful frame that you just distinguish. Because at the one hand, you're a leader. You're there to provide mm-hmm. sovereignty and certainty for you, the people who depend on you, who yeah. don't have certainty, right? So I understand that. At the same time, my experience of you is being very open and welcoming and open heart. So it doesn't quite compute for me when you say I'm a very private
1: person. You know what I mean? I think the most deep stuff, like I've learned, like this conversation, I've learned how to have this conversation in a really, like a really real way. Like certain things that I'm saying that I might, I definitely wouldn't have said even two years ago, but I've learned. And some of this is just life experience. Some of it's just where I am. I don't know that it just makes more sense for me to be out there about who I am. And if, if you know our conversation is about me revealing what has worked for me and inspiring other people to do so, and then giving them some practical tips, Mm -hmm. then that has to be part of it. Because I will tell you that I think that I'm a much better doctor. I'm a much better teacher. I'm a much better employer. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm a much better partner. I'm a much better parent. I'm a much better friend when I'm able to be vulnerable in that way and Mm -hmm. and um, create some real intimacy actually because otherwise it's like I'm just showing you this shell that's also unattainable
0: veneer right beautiful perfect yeah
1: right exactly and some of that I think was like me being I mean I really am authentically warm and I'm interested in your story and I want to make you feel welcome that that's not not real about me but that's also can be a shield a little bit Mm -hmm. so because I'm in control I'm doing that.
0: Okay, so do you mind practicalize that for people who are listening? Practical, me, right? So That's a me, hard
1: one. I don't really know. So, I mean, so let, me, let
0: me set up the context for a little bit then you can help mm-hmm. with question, right? Because in my mind, there's a spectrum. There's the, I won't share everything and there's the, I'll share everything. TMN, right, right? <laughs> right,
1: <laughs> right, like, right, right. New right. element
0: things and doesn't matter. Right. Just, like emo- the way I articulate it, not so awfully is uh, emotional throw up. They just like yeah. Bleh, everything. Yeah. Right? So I love to use the Yin Yang sign quite mm-hmm. a lot. Podcast. So the answer is somewhere in the middle, right? Yeah. Not over here, not over here, right? So how do you discern? All right, I'm being open about who I am as a human being, not a perfect identity, right? But at the same time, I'm also here as a leader. So. There's a sweet spot somewhere in the middle. Can you share with us how you think about what well, to it, what it,
1: not it goes back to to what I was talking about, which is that internal sensor, you know, because if I, I now I feel more comfortable with being vulnerable in certain ways. And I think you have to have boundaries too. Like it's not appropriate for me to talk to you who I barely know or on a Facebook Live about certain things. Like that's not going to happen. Like there are some people who might come on and do that and you'd be like, whoa, or maybe you wouldn't. I don't know. But for me, like it's about boundaries you know, because there's a there, vulnerability and boundaries, that is the yin and yang. Okay. In my opinion, when we're talking about this, so practically, I mean, there isn't like, I can't give you like the three-step checklist to get to the perfect <laughs> balance between boundaries and vulnerability. If somebody online, I'm sure I'm mean, it's going to come up on my feed for sure, <laughs> but you know, somebody is doing that. And I don't know what that is because everybody has a different balance point. Everybody has right. a different place in which they are integrating those two, but those, both those things have to be valued. And if you're, starting to feel super duper naked and uncomfortable, it might be time to tone it down. That's where the boundary is. Like, mm. you know, and again, this its a lot of it's really, it's just about practice. It's about trying and learning and, you know, pushing it a little bit this way, pushing it a little bit that way, pulling it back. And, you know, it's not going to be the same in every single situation. Obviously, like in a conversation with you, it's going to be, you know the balance is over here in a conversation with an employee it's going to be over there you know in a mm-hmm. conversation with a patient or an administrator or you know with a friend it's just it, it, they they change those are moving targets but to me boundaries are super 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 important in that this mm-hmm. doesn't mean that you give it all up that's not protecting yourself that's not taking care of yourself
0: mm-hmm. i think it was brene brown she said um vulnerability. big fan huh big fan yeah yeah so Am my yeah Because she is the, hmm, how do I articulate it? She's the total opposite of my, how I grew up, right? She's all about owning the shame and the guilt. And which Mm -hmm. is great, because I learned a lot from the way she articulate those very nuanced, difficult to articulate emotions, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And one
0: thing that she said really landed for me is vulnerability is an earned privilege.
1: Yeah,
0: be vulnerable with everyone right same thing because they haven't earned it so to speak exactly so i really like that the way i will articulate it for myself is life is a roller coaster right right our biggest superpower comes from our biggest wounds mm. now, when i actually have owned all of my guilt all of my shame all of my shadow all of my wounds and I come out to the other side and know all of my lessons. When I can earn, uh, own the lessons and the shadow, then I'm complete. And at that point, I can use that as a tool to to teach, right, from my personal story. But yeah. I, so so that's, from for me, what works. What doesn't work is when I'm still incomplete. When I'm still yeah. in that you know, that that, yeah. that you know, vibrational energy, negative energy, and then I can't quite own my accomplishment, then that's what come off inauthentic. Cause I've been thinking about this question a lot. That's kind of what I come to.
1: That's beautiful. That's really interesting. I took a storytelling class once and the, the teacher who became a good friend said to us, you know, a lot of our best stories are gonna come from wounds, but the thing is, Time to share that story is while you're still in the wound, where the wound is fresh. It has to heal and scar over, and then you have learned something from it. You have a perspective on it. You're not so vulnerable in that area anymore, and you your your ability to share it now is a much more powerful tool as opposed to the emotional vomit that would occur while you're still in it. isn't like that's pro- the processing, that's not the time to share in a storytelling event, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? It was very specific, but I think that that's true and that applies. It's kind of really the same thing that you're saying, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, beautiful.
0: Well, my friend, it's been an hour, time flies very quickly, and it I does be super respectful of your time. So, we had talked about a lot of different things. We talked about how you grew up, we had talked about how you learned that life is about contribution about helping others. It's not about you. You had talked about what else we talked about. We talked about how you pick your majors. You're, a your rebel. You, you picked the, the life that you wanted, our history to psychology. And then somehow you it up in medicine. I didn't actually ask you about that gap. I will leave it for another time. Another time. <laughs> we, we had talked about medicine. Your teacher taught you that, Hey, at the end of life, what do they think about? Do they think about their possessions or do they think about what matters most in their life? We had talked about how COVID, how it impacted your personal practice and looking forward, how uh, different hospital systems could, is going to help navigate in, in, in this whole crisis. We had talked about also, what else did we talk about?
1: A lot of things.
0: <laughs> Spirituality. We touched upon that. We talked about Right. We talked about doing transition time, doing pivot time, doing transformation time. What first you do self-care and then do whatever you need to do to like meditate, to get still. And then we talked about how uh, you pick your friends, right? So out of a wide gambit of everything that we had talked about, what's one action that you want our listeners to take? from this conversation?
1: Oh my goodness. I mean, I think if there's one actionable item here, it's the one thing that has been a through line for me probably for the last 20 years, which is my meditation practice. And I can't say that I do it exactly the way I've thought I would, but having every single day, a period of time that is still, is has been the thing that has had the most positive impact on me. And so if nothing else, that people can try, there's so many apps and things and stop judging and stop talking about how you're making your list. That's okay. That's what's supposed to happen. You know, but giving yourself, if you could do 20 minutes, great. But even just five minutes every day of quiet breathing really it will it is a game changer stopping focus on the
0: meditation by the way
1: i mean i have a mantra meditation but i don't even do the same thing all the time and the reason i think the reason a mantra works is because it gives you that thing to pull you back when you are making your shopping list or you are starting to stress out about that situation okay right let me go back to the mantra that's that is the practice it is a practice there is no perfection it's a practice. So getting kind of away from accomplishing anything with that, but just being in it and being present. For me personally, it's been a game changer. There's a ton of science to support it, a ton of science to support it. So that, that's perfect because that's my heart and my head experience with that.
0: Beautiful. Thank you so much. Now for people who are listening, inspired by your story, inspired by the way you think, where should they follow you?
1: Um, they can find me on, Insta- I'm most active on Instagram. So it's at Ask Dr. Suzanne. They can find my website, The Dr. Suzanne. They can find me, I'm out there and they can connect with me. Beautiful. And I'd love to hear.
0: Beautiful. Thank you, my friend. So appreciative. Of oh, your- thank you. you.
1: What a great conversation. Have a beautiful day.